For our purposes in this discussion, I want to make a couple of distinctions, like the distinctions between thinking and mind, starting to see that thinking is something a brain does for a body, and mind is something that is for a being, that is a being, that is our knowing presence. And beginning to consider that distinction, I'm going to present another concept, which is learning and knowing. And thinking never knows, since whatever it concludes is always subject to more information that can adjust its conclusion. So there are certain things that can be known to thought, but in its approach of attempting to know those things, it isn't because it has achieved knowing that those things are recognized. It's simply conceding, like in math is a good example. Two plus two is four. It can take some effort to begin to understand that, but the understanding isn't what concludes two plus two is four because two plus two is always amounted to four in terms of mathematics. So our awareness of it and our learning is how to begin to conclude things that are applicable. Thinking is designed to help our body function and our human experience express its capacity. And if we have a knowing awareness, that's a very different awareness than thought because it's not an awareness that is in a process. It's not an awareness that has doubt. It's not an awareness that's in question because there is no risk to it. And there is no doubt in it because there is no risk to it being or not being. It simply is all that is. And something that to a brain is very hard to conceive of. And yet it does not mean because we can't think of it, we don't know it. And so the difference between the two is very similar to the difference between learning and knowing. Learning very often is a repetitive association of events to help us begin to apply something that works, that's practical, that's predictable, that is reliable, that we can apply and have something happen equally. Driving is a good example. Most of us learn at some point how to drive. And at first it can be very tiring because there's a lot going on that doesn't seem to be going on when you're sitting in the passenger seat and your parents have been driving you around. But when you start actually getting there and realizing it's your job to get through the events that are changing constantly in front of you and are often not predictable at all, it can be very taxing. And then in time, association, repetition becomes what we call second nature which becomes really first nature in terms of our util our util our utilization of those functional capacities so those are human fr- expressions based on thinking we learn because we're dealing with an environment that's constantly changing because that's the relative agreement or context that bodies live in that humans live in the, the this universe and knowing is an absolute state of mind and an ever-present state of mind, an ever-present knowing, something that doesn't start when we start paying attention to it, but never started because it never ends. And yet it always is, and so it's always new, so always seems to be beginning wherever we are whenever we're willing to look. 
And it's not a coincidence, it's there whenever we look. It's not as though it's being given to us then, it hadn't been before. It's just the difference between our own willingness to look at what's there and what we're doing and what we know relative to what we think. And starting to divest ourselves on this chronic reliance of thinking is our source and thinking thinking is all that we, we know. So our functional capacity to learn as humans depends on our ability to apply what's happening to what's happening. What are our resources? What can we do with our bodies? What can we think in relation to what's happening around us that's productive and useful, gainful, functional? To consider that our only reliance is on thought and to subvert a sense of knowing that we have that transcends our senses in the body and has an intu- is an intuitive beyond reason, something beyond reason, would be to undermine the capacity of thinking to think. So learning for our purposes is not what we're doing when it comes to beginning to wake up or be aware of this knowing sense, but beginning to unlearn the habitual addictive habits we've used to deny this to vainly deny, because it's impossible to deny truth, it's impossible to deny reality. We can think it's possible, but that doesn't mean it's possible simply because we think it any more than our thinking becomes reality because we think it's true. So our process in this discussion is beginning to look at what we're doing. If we see what we're doing accurately, the stickiness of it, the apparent inability to not do it, just vanishes because we start to see that the thing we're thinking with about it is the thing that's giving us the impression that it, whatever it is, ego, brain, thoughts, whatever we're using to excuse what we're doing is nothing more than we're thinking of it. There is nothing there. So in one sense, we can't know any better. There isn't anything we can do to shake a knowing presence. There isn't anything we can do to get rid of it. And then on the other end, there isn't anything we can learn to do to defend against it. Nothing. It will always be vain hope and vain belief and vain faith in an idea born of thought that thought can conclude the problem that it's creating when it's constantly remanufacturing the problem it's claiming to want to put out. It's like trying to put a fire out with gasoline. So one really mimics the other, but one is a reflection of life and love and expansion and a never-ending awareness of bliss, I imagine. And the other one is friction and disdain and desperation and futility and frustration and a sense that it never ends. And what never ends is our focus on thought utilizing, being utilized to actually put the fire out that it's creating. We just go in circles around and around and around and around. So our job in unlearning is to begin. Here's another functional aspect of humans. We have natural fears. Our bodies sense things. Our bodies are sentient. Our beings are sentient and our bodies sense things. Our beings are knowing and our bodies sense things. They sense our environment. They're there. Things smell bad to tell us something's wrong. Our toes hurt when we stub it to tell it, it we may need a Band-Aid. We have bodily language that talks about things. And pain usually is the conveyor of those things. 
something smells horrible or rotten, normally things that smell sweet are not warning signs. They're actually attractive. We might want to eat them. Matter of fact, sweets are probably as popular as they are because of that. But things that stink or smell, if we ate something rotten, we generally throw it up and regurgitate it. And that largely is exactly what we do when we're lying. We're repulsed by it. It smells. It stinks. We're trying to cover it up. We're trying to make believe it's not us. We're not doing it. We're not the one. Trying to hide it. Trying to keep it to ourselves. Trying to act better. And so I want to give a little division between the two types of fear there are, real and imagined. What's real to a body is a fear that threatens that body, an event that threatens that body. So fear is an automatic guidance system to help prevent that threat that could harm the body in some way. It could be a car coming at us at 70 miles an hour that we didn't notice and it's 50 feet away. Could be any number of things as you go through your day that could turn in a direction that they cause threats, bodily threats. And so the basic breakdown of re reactions to threats are defensive and protective, and they're designed to help us, not to hurt us. So fight, flight, freeze, and the new addition fawn are all natural responses to an actual threat. And... We are built on a very clever platform to have those awarenesses available to us, and they are our body language. If we read them properly, we have a good chance of reducing that threat. And chances are, if we're in the face of something, we're going to act aggressively to avoid it in some way. And I'm not suggesting aggression is our cure, but in situations, it may mean running faster than we've ever run or being quieter than we've ever been in anything we need to do to calm the bear down that seems to be intent on tracking us down. We don't do a lot of thinking about it. We just seem to intuitively know what to do. And we do it. Now, sometimes those things backfire. We run from the bear and it just overruns us. But the point is, those things are designed in our body to help us as guidance systems. So let's go to the other side, self-imposed fear, self-centered fear. Fear based on what I think of myself. And if who I think I am is a self only based on what I think, then who I think I am in reality and truth is imagined. And I have no basis other than what I think. And if the sum total of my existence is all that I think, and I think it's true and real, then self-centered fear is an awareness that something is wrong. And what's wrong is I'm making believe who I am is what I think, rather than what I think is what I think, and who I am is who I am. So let me break that down in terms of these reactions. Fear that's created in self-centered thought has the same four basic consequences. Fight, which is defensiveness, reactiveness, defiance, denial, flight, which are compulsions, escaping into impulsive behaviors or compulsive behaviors, escaping into something outside of me to become obsessed with to distract my attention. 
Freeze is the numbing effect of denial on my body when I no longer can feel what I'm doing is wrong, so I think it's not happening to help promote the idea that I should just continue at all costs. That what I'm doing isn't wrong because I don't feel it, and I've become numb to it. And numbing in the body is basically a release of emergency cocktails, chemicals that we create in our system for an emergency that we're not experiencing other than in thought that now becomes a 24-hour-a-day utilization of something that's designed to serve our interest in a very quick burst of energy and adrenaline and all these other, I don't know what all the chemicals are, but they're corrosive to our systems. They undermine our systems. They create less flexibility in our systems. So we get arteries that are stiffer and we get muscles that are aching because they're tighter and the blood doesn't flow. So it isn't able to produce the healing natural consequences. That it does. So everything starts to backfire in the freezing. We've numbed ourselves because as sensitive bodies, we're trying to be insensitive to what we're doing to claim that not, not feeling it means it's not happening, which is what the intoxication is with both our bodily chemicals and any outside substance. We're trying to feel better while, in fact, we're perpetuating the same worst thought. And by thinking feeling is the answer, we're avoiding the actual source of the feeling that's bad, the feeling that's wrong, the feeling that's desperate. So fawn is the new introduction to these characteristics, is like a baby fawn with a deer, a mother. And mothers, when they have their fawns with them, are incredibly re reactive and responsive to what's happening in their environment. They're very, very protective. But the essence of fawning is to be nice. It's people-pleasing. To become nice to the threat, hoping it will reduce the potential of that threat. And so what we're doing is learning to manipulate our environment by acting ways that we normally wouldn't act to that threat to simply keep that threat from happening. And I would suggest that that's the essence of enabling. When we think we're helping somebody and what we're helping ourselves to is the thought we're helping and what we're doing for them and helping them is giving them more latitude to get worse, we're expressing addictive thinking in the world and giving people a greater chance and greater latitude to find themselves worse off by what they're doing because we're contributing to their delinquency. So in all of these breakdowns of how we react, respond to fear, freeze and, and fawn and kiss ass, for instance, is a window into how addiction creates, literally kills us. The thing that's designed in our body to protect us ends up actually doing everything it can to kill us, which is, again, simply emblematic of the fact that we make believe our thoughts are alive and real and true when in fact there is no life in those. And ultimately what's trying to die is the idea that there is a self attached to what I think and that that self that I think of is in fact who I am. It doesn't have any life. And to see that clearly, to see anything clearly, to begin to have things as they are eliminates what seems like a sticky impossibility of letting them go because it allows them to simply be and you can then look at them and say, look, I can do that. I can think that and I can also not think that and I cannot do that. And in the knowing sense, what we're talking about is beginning to unlearn the habituation of words we use, stories we tell and ideas we promote that are not true, 
but keep us using justification. Well, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else thinks so. It's interesting that we blame everybody else for when we're feeling bad or anybody else and then use them to justify what we're continuing to do as an excuse to continue to do it. We have a choice. It's ever-present. As we are willing to look, we will see, all of us. And if what we see is what's actually happening, you'll see when you're thinking things that aren't true are real, the only thing that held them to be dense and obstacles and blocks and weighty and heavy and burdensome was the thought you were having about them. They didn't have any more than that. Just like kids imagining that there are, there are ghosts in the dark. No matter how many times the lights come on and you prove they're not there, the fact that they can imagine they're there when the lights are off is what they're afraid of. It's not the ghosts, it's their imagination. And it's the same with us as adults. When we keep things to ourselves and think they're in the dark, we start to fear what we're doing by making believe what we're doing isn't what we're doing. And the learning here is beginning to unlearn. The doing here is beginning to undo. The letting go is effectively beginning to see that a fist that's closed and ready to fight and claims to have the most valuable jewel inside it to warrant that fight while it has nothing in that fist is simply subjecting itself to a potential threat that wouldn't otherwise exist if it weren't for the intention and the idea behind the clenched fist, neck, throat, whatever it is.